The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. He was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1913, and lived to be 81 years old. For the first half of his life, he was a writer in training, making his way through the world, applying his intelligence to overcome personal hardships and the obstacles that American society put in the path of a black man with ambition. For the second half of his life, he lived as one of the most successful and celebrated African-American novelists of the 20th century. And in between those two halves, was the publication of a single book, only one book. But that book was a masterpiece. I'm talking, of course, about Ralph Ellison and his amazing novel, Invisible Man. We will hear more about that book and his story today. And we're also going to have Mike Palindrome here for a draft, because in addition to the build-up to the novel and all the life that went into the writing of that book, there was a lot of not writing in Ellison's life, or at least not publishing. And so we'll use our time with Ellison to set up the draft with Mike. Famous instances of writer's block. Where does Ellison fit in with writers? And then where does he fit in with the not writers? The writers who were blocked. That's coming up today on the History of Literature. Here we go. Hello. Hello. I'm Jack Wilson. So good of you to join me today. And I'm so glad to be here. Ralph Ellison. What a writer. What a man. And what a novel. Invisible Man is so good. I can't wait to share the opening with you, which we will get to. We're also going to have a speech of his. And then, of course, we'll pivot to our draft with Mike Palindrome. I actually did the draft first. He and I did the topic of writer's block, and it was interesting, but it didn't feel like a full episode to me, at least not now that we're back to one episode a week, so I thought let's focus on Ellison for a bit because of his writer's block, and then we'll do our draft on writer's block, and we will give the people, you, the listener, a full meal instead of just an appetizer. I wouldn't want to leave you hungry or hangry my dear listeners. Okay, but we have to move quickly because there's a lot to cover. So let's begin. Ralph Ellison was born as Ralph Waldo Ellison, which may sound familiar to you because, of course, it's very similar to Ralph Waldo Emerson. We have an episode on him in our archives, by the way, pretty fascinating guy as well, and a titan of American letters in the 19th century. So Emerson died in 1882, and about 30 years later, A black man named Louis Alfred Ellison chose that name, Ralph Waldo, for the second of his three sons. The first boy had died as an infant. He had been named Alfred after his father's middle name. But the second boy got a name deserving, a a good name for a great 
intellectual writer. And it turned out that this was no accident. Ralph found out when he was an adult that his father had wanted him to be a poet. A poet in 1913. Seems like a grand vision for a working-class man, especially an African-American. A noble goal for him to choose. A lot of parents are afraid of endeavors like a career in the arts for their children. They hope they'll be a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman because we worry about paying the bills for those young wannabe actors and poets and harpists. But Louis, if you know any, but Louis Alfred Ellison, who loved literature, was a man who wanted his boy to be a poet. And that's pretty much what happened. A novelist with a gift for words, a poetic soul. I'm sure Louis Alfred would have been pleased and proud of his son. Unfortunately, he never got the chance to see that happen. The novel writing and Ralph didn't really get the chance to know his father very well as his father died when working, when he was hauling a 100-pound block of ice up some steps to a general store. So the father, Ralph Waldo's father, had started in construction and had gotten his own business. He was a delivery man of ice and coal. And while he was hauling a block of ice up to that store, he dropped the ice, and a shard of it came out and stabbed him in the stomach, pierced his abdomen. How awful is that? What a fluke accident. I didn't even know that could happen. Ralph was three years old. He had a younger brother who had just been born. His mother, Ida, took the boys and moved them up north, where she thought life would be easier for them growing up. As Ralph put it, she thought we had a better chance of surviving as a black man. Given the Southern attitude toward black men at the time, Oklahoma was kind of a border state, and they lived in Gary, Indiana, with her brother. For a while, unfortunately, her brother lost his job, and Ida never managed to find one there, so they returned to the South, or to Oklahoma anyway, where the situation was a little better. Ralph, young Ralph, was a hustler. I don't mean a street hustler. I mean he hustled. He found work as a waiter and an assistant for a dentist, as an assistant for a dentist to a dentist. He shined shoes. He worked in restaurants. He did whatever it took. Busboy. He also developed a taste for jazz music in those early years, and he got some free lessons from a guy in the neighborhood, a friend of his father, and he, or uh, sorry, his a father of his friend. Then he got good at the trumpet and the saxophone. He also played football. Meanwhile, his mother remarried and remarried and eventually remarried again. She had four husbands in in all, counting Ralph Waldo's father. But the next big thing for Ralph was to get out of Oklahoma. Music was his path as his trumpet playing was good enough to get him a spot at the Tuskegee Institute a famous all-black university in Alabama. He was 20 years old when he started there. The 19-teens and 20s had become the 1930s now. The country was in a depression, but there were a few cultural developments that Ralph Waldo was able to tap into. One was jazz. Tuskegee was famous for it, and he was influenced by it, both as a person and eventually as a writer. Jazz would be essential to his novel writing and really to his life for the next 60 years. The second big development was literary modernism, the shattering of norms, the development of new ways to say things, the fragmentary piecing together of identity 
in an isolating modern world. The horrors of World War I and the new psychological currents from writers like Dostoevsky and Nietzsche and Freud had led a bunch of writers to experiment with language and form, seeking new ways to reflect this modern identity. Ellison was transfixed. He spent long hours in the library reading Gertrude Stein and James Joyce and T.S. Eliot, especially The Wasteland, the poem he later credited as transforming him. It, quote, moved and intrigued, end quote, me. He said, that was an awkward way to say that. It moved and intrigued me, he said. But he wondered why he hadn't seen something that intense in that particular way of intensity, that intensity of language and form. He wondered why he hadn't seen something like that attempted by an African-American writer. He also was drawn to some late 19th century novels, writers like Thomas Hardy of Jude the Obscure and Dostoevsky. Those were the kinds of characters that he was drawn to, anti-heroes, the bleak. People often compare Invisible Man with Crime and Punishment, or at least they cite that as an influence on Ellison. But as it happened, I first read Invisible Man soon after I had read Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, and I was struck by the obvious parallels there. After I read Notes from Underground, I thought, this is so brilliant and so compelling. I wonder why no one has done this more recently and in English. And then I read Invisible Man, and I thought, oh, of course, somebody has. Ellison got there. He did it. We will hear that in a few minutes, and you can hear it for yourself. But let's finish with Ellison's life. After Tuskegee, he started writing. He met Richard Wright, who encouraged him and published one of his short stories. He was reading Hemingway now, too, as nearly everyone seems to have been in those days. Hemingway is kind of a how-to guide for fiction writing. He breaks things down in a way that's instructive, even if you have to get beyond it to be anything other than a weaker version of Hemingway or a parody of it. Ellison was also, in his personal life, he was drawn to the protests of the time and the political movements that sought to change the world for the better, including Marxism and the Communist Party. But he later said that his interest in all of this was primarily an interest in art rather than injustice. He analyzed Mel Rowe and Dostoevsky and Kafka and Cervantes. He wanted to see how those authors and Mark Twain and Dickens and and painters like Goya and Picasso, he wanted to see how those people demanded change or registered protest or cried out against injustice in their art. That was his project. He viewed himself as a writer and an artist. And so, where he had axes to grind or wrongs to write, it came out in the short stories he was writing, in his essays, and above all, in his novel, Invisible Man, and then in all the efforts he made at writing a novel that came after. We'll have a little more about that later, too. So, his head was in art. Ever since Tuskegee, his head was in art and writing and where it should go and how he should do it. His body was going to Dayton, Ohio, and Chicago, and New York, and Paris. He was meeting people, working, joining things, putting together the kinds of experiences that he would later draw upon for Invisible Man, which follows the protagonist through a coming of age, kind of like you might see in Stendhal. The Red and the Black and Julian Sorel comes to mind especially, but 
There are also some elements of Russian literature and American literature in the Victorian novel. He was an intellectual sponge who soaked up all the great works of the past and with particular self-consciousness tried to craft a work that could stand as part of that tradition. He knew he was a black writer and he didn't shrink from that and what it entailed and he wasn't trying to avoid any of that in his writing, but he constantly sought to put his background as a minority writer in a universal context. All writers are minorities, he said. They come from minority groups of one kind or another, and the individual is the greatest minority of all. When he looked to recreate a form or to find the correct form to convey his experience, he wasn't just looking at the history of black writers in America to see who he should follow. He was looking at how Picasso tried to invent his form or reinvent his form to express what he needed to express and how Shakespeare had done it and how fairy tales did it and how all art had done it, the best works of all time. How had they represented their age? How had they represented the plight of the individual in their age? How had they done it? It made him hard on his own work. Invisible Man was a a huge immediate success. It won all kinds of prizes and was translated into different languages and received rave reviews. Its power was obvious and immediate, and yet he said he doubted it would be read in 20 years. I failed, he said. The world disagreed, and still does. So let's hear a passage from the opening of Invisible Man. This is from 1952, when the novel came out. He was on his second marriage by now, he and his first wife, split after he had had an affair, which he confessed to his wife. His first, I guess we're still doing a little more of the life. (laughs) Hang on, we'll get to the book. His first wife had been an actress. His second wife, Fanny McConnell, was a, a college graduate who was also involved with the theater and wrote for the Chicago Defender. She also supported Ellison financially, who was now earning only a little money from book reviews. These are the years before the book came out, before Invisible Women came out. She typed out the novel that he was writing in longhand. And what else have I missed about the life? Quite a bit, actually. I jumped over a bunch. He was eligible for World War II, but he wasn't drafted. He eventually joined the Merchant Marine. He was part of the black literary community for those years, and this all comes into play in the novel. If we can say he differs from the other major figures of that era, James Baldwin, Richard Wright. You might say it's the level of surface anger. The passions run hot in Baldwin and Wright in different ways. Ellison in Invisible Man is cooler, even even, uh, detached. Dispassionate, I was going to say. That's a word that's often used as well. Educated, self-aware, alienated, existential. His hero is a hero for the age, a man struggling in the aftermath of World War II to make sense of the Depression and the communist rise, the rise of the Communist Party and the war, and what was coming now, what's going to come next. It's Saul Bellow's Dangling Man and Beckett's Waiting for Godot and Sartre and Camus. Those are the the spiritual cousins of this book. And of course the long-ago cousin Dostoevsky. Listen for the narrative voice. Actually, before we read Invisible Man, let's start with Dostoevsky. I think I've read this passage before, but I'll give you a few sentences or a couple of paragraphs to remind you of what Notes from Underground sounds like. 
begins, I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. I am an unattractive man. I believe there is something wrong with my liver. However, I know nothing at all about my liver disease and do not know for certain what ails me. I don't consult a doctor for it and never have, though I have a respect for medicine and doctors. Besides, I am extremely superstitious, sufficiently so to respect medicine. Anyway, I'm well educated enough not to be superstitious, but I am superstitious. No, I refuse to consult a doctor from spite. That you probably will not understand. Well, I understand it, though. Of course, I can't explain who it is precisely that I am mortifying in this case by my spite. I am perfectly well aware that I cannot pay out the doctors by not consulting them. I know better than anyone that by all this I am only injuring myself and no one else. But still, if I don't consult a doctor, it is from spite. My liver is bad. Well, let it get worse. I've been going on like that for a long time, 20 years. Now I am 40. I used to be in the government service, but am no longer. I was a spiteful official. I was rude and took pleasure in being so. I did not take bribes, you see, so I was bound to find a recompense in that, at least. A poor jest, but I will not scratch it out. I wrote it thinking it would sound very witty. But now that I have seen myself that I only wanted to show off in a despicable way... I will not scratch it out on purpose. End quote. That's Dostoevsky in 1864. Still pretty fresh in my view. I want to keep going. <laughs> I like this voice. This guy is obviously miserable, telling us about his misery. Well, here's Invisible Man, written about 80 years later. This is the beginning. I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Nor is my invisibility exactly a matter of a biochemical accident to my epidermis. That invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a peculiar disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact, a matter of the construction of their inner eyes, those eyes with which they look through their physical eyes upon reality. I am not complaining, nor am I protesting either. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen, although it is most often rather wearing on the nerves. Then, too, you're constantly being bumped against by those of poor vision. Or again, you often doubt if you really exist. You wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds. Say, a figure in a nightmare, which the sleeper tries with all his strength to destroy. It's when you feel like this, that out of resentment, you begin to bump people back. And let me confess, you feel that way most of the time. You ache with the need to convince yourself that you do exist in the real world, that you're a part of all the sound and anguish, and you strike out with your fists, 
you curse, and you swear to make them recognize you. And alas, it's seldom successful. One night, I accidentally bumped into a man, and perhaps because of the near darkness, he saw me and called me an insulting name. I sprang at him, seizing his coat lapels, and demanded that he apologize. He was a tall, blonde man, and as my face came close to his, he looked insolently out of his blue eyes and cursed me, his breath hot in my face as he struggled. I pulled his chin down upon the crown of my head, butting him as I had seen the West Indians do, and I felt his flesh tear and the blood gush out, and I yelled, Apologize! Apologize! But he continued to curse and struggle, and I butted him again and again until he went down heavily, on his knees, profusely bleeding. I kicked him repeatedly, in a frenzy, because he still uttered insults, though his lips were frothy with blood. Oh, yes, I kicked him. And in my outrage, I got out my knife and prepared to slit his throat right there beneath the lamplight in the deserted street holding him in the collar with one hand and opening the knife with my teeth. When it occurred to me that the man had not seen me, actually, that he, as far as he knew, was in the midst of a walking nightmare. And I stopped the blade, slicing the air as I pushed him away, letting him fall back to the street. I stared at him hard as the lights of a car stabbed through the darkness. He lay there, moaning on the asphalt, a man almost killed by a phantom. It unnerved me. I was both disgusted and ashamed. I was like a drunken man myself, wavering about on weakened legs. Then I was amused. Something in this man's thick head had sprung out and beaten him within an inch of his life. I began to laugh at this crazy discovery. Would he have awakened at the point of death? Would death himself have freed him for wakeful living? but I didn't linger. I ran away into the dark, laughing so hard I feared I might rupture myself. The next day I saw his picture in the Daily News, beneath a caption stating that he had been mugged. Poor fool, poor blind fool, I thought with sincere compassion, mugged by an invisible man. Most of the time, although I do not choose, as I once did, to deny the violence of my days by ignoring it, I am not so overtly violent. I remember that I am invisible and walk softly so as not to awaken the sleeping ones. Sometimes it is best not to awaken them. There are few things in the world as dangerous as sleepwalkers. I learned in time, though, that it is possible to carry on a fight against them without their realizing it. For instance, I have been carrying on a fight with monopolated light and power for some time now. I use their service and pay them nothing at all, and they don't know it. Oh, they suspect that power is being drained off, but they don't know where. All they know is that according to the master meter back there in their power station, a hell of a lot of free current is disappearing somewhere into the jungle of Harlem. The joke, of course, is that I don't live in Harlem, but in a border area. Several years ago, before I discovered the advantages of being invisible, I went through a routine process of buying service and paying their outrageous rates. But no more. I gave up all that, along with my apartment and my old way of life, that way based upon the fallacious assumption that I, like other men, was visible. Now, aware of my invisibility, I live rent-free in a building rented strictly to whites, in a section of the basement that was shut off and forgotten during the 19th century.
Mm. Wow. Do you not want to read this book now? That's also pretty fresh, even though we're getting, what, 60, 70 years later. The distinction we notice by putting Dostoevsky and Invisible Man side by side is that both are navel-gazing, first-person, intensely first-person, but Ellison's is more directly about his society. He's not a miserable creature, as we see in Nose from Underground. He's a creature in a miserable society. But that miserable society has had its effect on the individual. His identity does not exist apart from it because his existence does not exist apart from it. Society has turned him into this invisible man, and now he's going to tell that person's story. Ellison lived for the rest of his life in the aftermath of this book. He wrote another, which was a disaster. He wrote 2,000 pages, and he was never satisfied with it. And at one point, he lost most of it in a house fire. And then there was a, a posthumous publication of it based on notes he left behind. But I think it's fair to say that he never again, or never, I guess I should say, he never lived up to the standard he had set for himself. Invisible Man didn't meet that standard, and when he didn't have to publish again, or when he was self-conscious about meeting the needs of the public and the critics, he let his critical self overwhelm his artistic self. He wrote essays after that. He was brilliant in his essays and in his conversation, but there's a kind of sadness to the stories of him as he got older, as it seems like he was his own worst enemy. The world wanted to hear more from him, and he waited and waited and waited, chasing a perfection that never came. As a person, he was not perfect. He was often accused of snobbery, and he can come across as ungrateful to his mother and unappreciative of the women who doted on him. He was friends with writers like Saul Bellow and Robert Penn Warren and Langston Hughes and Richard Wright, although he also had spats with some of them. And as the years went by, he struggled to fit in with what people wanted him to be. No, he wasn't perfect as a human. And he himself sought a definition as an artist. That's how he defined himself. And he believed that he had fallen short there, too. The world, however, treated him as if the perfection had come. And the perfection was Invisible Man. The book won the National Book Award, beating out The Old Man in the Sea. That's one time the prize committee got it right, in my opinion. And before you Hemingway buffs get all cranky, that book helped Papa win the Nobel Prize for Literature. So content yourselves with that. Invisible Man won the National Book Award, and that was just the first of many accolades. Ellison won two President's Medals and an honorary doctorate from Harvard. He taught at a half dozen universities and was elected to a half a dozen fellowships and societies, including the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Libraries were named after him. Foreign governments honored him. Statues were erected. He won medals and inspired postage stamps. He was a reliable essayist and social commentator, but he did not publish fiction again in his lifetime. He began his second novel, Juneteenth, in 1958, and it was unfinished when he died in 1994. I want to give you part of his speech now, his National Book Award acceptance speech, but to set the stage to set the stage for this, let's hear how he came across to other people. An interviewer described him this way, quote, while Mr. Ellison speaks, he rarely pauses, and although the strain of organizing his thought is sometimes evident, his phraseology and the quiet, steady flow and development of ideas are overwhelming. 
To listen to him is rather like sitting in the back of a huge hall and feeling the lecturer's faraway eyes staring directly into your own. The highly emphatic, almost professorial intonations startle with their distance, self-confidence, and warm undertones of humor. End quote. Imagine that voice and that kind of presence reading this speech. So this is Ralph Allison's National Book Award acceptance speech. The award, of course, being for Invisible Man. He says, quote, If I were asked in all seriousness just what I considered to be the chief significance of Invisible Man as a fiction, I would reply, its experimental attitude and its attempt to return to the mood of personal moral responsibility for democracy, which typified the best of our 19th century fiction. When I examined the rather rigid concepts of reality which informed a number of the works which impressed me and to which I owed a great deal, I was forced to conclude that for me and for so many hundreds of thousands of Americans, reality was simply far more mysterious and uncertain, and at the same time more exciting, and still, despite its raw violence and capriciousness, more promising." To see America with an awareness of its rich diversity and its almost magical fluidity and freedom, I was forced to conceive of a novel unburdened by the narrow naturalism which has led after so many triumphs to the final and unrelieved despair which marks so much of our current fiction. I was to dream of a prose which was flexible and swift as American change is swift, confronting the inequalities and brutalities of our society forthrightly but yet thrusting forth its images of hope, human fraternity, and individual self-realization. A prose which would make use of the richness of our speech, the idiomatic expression, and the rhetorical flourishes from past periods, which are still alive among us. Despite my personal failures, there must be possible a fiction which, leaving sociology and case histories to the scientists, can arrive at the truth about the human condition, here and now with all the bright magic of the fairy tale. End quote. What a shame that Ellison thought he didn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish in his life. So many others disagreed. We can see the kind of platonic ideal that he was setting out for himself as, as an ideal novel, what would perfectly represent what was in his mind, of what it would need to represent. In any case, the rest of us now have him as this double example. First, the example of a writer who managed to generate a literary masterpiece. And second, the example of a human being who, through his chase for perfection and perhaps a vulnerability to criticism, whether that was from others or from within, managed to spend the rest of his life generating little more than his own dreams and frustrations. So... Let's take a break and come back with some other writers who have borne that struggle of writer's block with some good humor, some self-deprecation, and an awful lot of torment and misery. Let's say the recipe here is one part good humor, one part self-deprecation, and ten hundred thousand million parts torment and misery. Writer's block with Mag- uh, with sorry, <laughs> writer's block with Mike Palindrome. After this, hey. 
Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's here to talk about 10 great instances of writer's block. What writers? Hey, Jack. <laughs> I'm not done I, yet. <laughs> I was, I was trying to preempt the writer's block discussion. This yeah. is what happens when you take so long in between our uh, sessions here. You forget how this works. So <laughs> what writers were blocked? What were the circumstances? And what, if anything, was the result? Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. So, Mike, did you feel kind of depressed when you were researching this? I've I feel like we might have lost some great literature by blocked writers, and and the writers sometimes are just absolutely miserable when they're in the middle of this writer's block. Yeah, well, I I went back and forth I, from feeling depressed to feeling kind of uh, inspired because mm. I guess the turnaround, <laughs> you know, the, the 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 prodigal child returning and you know coming up with the goods eventually. Oh, uh, so the unblocking was inspiring. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't focus on unblocking. Uh, that would, would have been a good way to look at this. Well, and the other thing I noticed is that people really uh, consider, think of it differently. Mm -hmm. um, like for a non-writer, I think writer's block can seem like, well, they haven't published in a while. Mm. But for a writer... The, the block is really kind of like not not writing at all. Mm. Um, it yeah. Can be, you know, people can produce, like I think David Foster Wallace, you know, produced thousands of pages that he decided would, he wouldn't publish. Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let's, let's jump into our draft because I'm worried if we talk too much about it that we're going <laughs> to use up all of our examples and stuff because uh, yeah. I tried to pick one from each... Uh, from each category. So I've got five different uh, types of writer's block here, so I don't want you to to lay them all out before we get into the draft here. So I'll let you pick first. What is your number one pick for writer's block? You know, I've got to go with Ralph Ellison. Ooh, because, um, yes. <laughs> I, I did my college thesis on Invisible Man and uh -huh. uh, French structuralist Roland Barthes. So just loved invisible man got you know read 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 it and reread certain 
um, sections over and over again mm-hmm. to the point where it was so alive in my mind. And then to find out that he hadn't published anything since. Yeah. And then, you, you know, people know the famous story. He, he was working on a second novel and he only had one copy and it was in a house that mm. um, there was a fire and it burned down and it burned the manuscript. Yeah. And there's that, he was running around, he had read parts of it out loud, he was running around to Saul Bellow and other friends and saying, what do you remember, what, what, you know, can you tell me what you, what phrases you remember, or passages, what passages did I read you, and trying to recreate it at that point, it was, uh, he was uh, in misery. I mean, here's someone who was hugely successful, very well accepted by the literary community and had, you know, was friends with Saul Bellow and the kind of support group that you think would, you know, help produce a next book relatively quickly. You know, notwithstanding the fire, he he was still, you know, unable to publish like a a novella or, you know, Mm. I mean, it's it's one of those baffling cases, but yeah. It's. I think there there are a lot of instances where the first book was so successful mm, mm-hmm. that that it was like the specter over the writer. Yeah, and that's he was actually my number one as well. And yeah. the category that I had him under was chaser of perfection. And yeah. it does seem like you know it's a double edged sword because on the one hand you read the book Invisible Man you think he's obviously knows what he's doing. He's so accomplished. You know, it's not like it's not the, you don't feel like he got lucky or that he just happened to find the right topic. And, and it's a little rough, but boys, this guy going to be a writer someday. You know, you feel like this is as good a novelist as America has. And then uh, nothing. (laughs) And you think, why don't we have four more books like that? Or at least, you know, some pretty good ones. But I think it's the weight of having done that and knowing uh, how good he could be and then maybe even wanting to to be better, to try to top it. And it just made him, he was writing, but he was not, he had too much pressure on himself, I think. He was was trying to follow his own first act. And I I picked him number one because there there, uh, are longer periods for there are writers with longer periods where they were blocked, but I feel like, you know, he's such an important writer. And this is where I'll just introduce this theory of mine where that I, w- I think it's better to be Ralph Ellison and have written just that one epic book mm. than someone like Jonathan Lethem, mm. who, I mean, I very much enjoyed motherless Brooklyn and, you know, his other stuff, but you know, it's, I'm struggling to really envision his books being remembered in like 150 years. Yeah. And it's, I, I, to me, that's kind of like a litmus test. Or are you churning up? And even him, he's not really churning up the books. He, he, you know, he has one book every five to seven years. But still, it just seems like, you know, he's put out 10 or so books. And I think I, I, I'd rack, I, I'd stack Invisible Man against his 10. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it not, is. Not to pick on Lethal. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. But, you know, maybe he's writing the best books that he can. And if he if he took longer to write one, it might not be better. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, 
You know what was one thing that was kind of interesting as the years went by, mm-hmm. the you know when you're writing a book, unless you're setting it in the mythical past, like uh, King Arthur or something, you're if you're writing about contemporary society or even you know kind of near short term history, the landscape changes under your feet, and yeah. the way that we look at history. you know, decade by decade, it becomes different. And so he was starting to write his second book in 1952. And by 1992, he was an old man, you know, he was 40 years older. But in between, there were the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And, and the way we looked at different aspects of American society or culture or black society, black culture, like it, it, he had become you stake out certain positions and maybe you're trying to develop those as your themes, but then there's an awful lot of history that goes by that can change the way that you maybe would have approached those same themes. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's that he was so invisible man is so much about capturing an era that, um, and I think he, he loved writing in that way. It's just so like, you know, the, the various types uh, of activism or passivism or, you know, removal from society. I mean, it must have been so much on his mind to try to, like, capture the era he was writing in, and then, you know, decades go by. Yeah, yeah. right. And then you feel like, I mean, on the one hand, you have this frustration. Others have said, talked about this, Jeffrey Eugenides and Philip Roth and and Fitzgerald, you have this early success, and so you feel like the spotlight is on you because you're well-known. And and when you're unknown, you just can't wait to get your book out there into the world. But when you're well-known, you know people are waiting, and you know that the yeah. critics are you know eager to see what you're going to do, and they're going to hold you to sort of a higher standard. And and maybe, maybe some people are ready to settle some old scores, or they want to see you fall on your face, or whatever it is. But then the more time goes by higher the stakes because it becomes, you know, well, what's he been doing for the last 10 years? And then, you know, well, he's spent 20 years, this must be a real masterpiece. And, <laughs> and you know, after, after 25 or 30, it's like, well, this must be, you know, what's he, he's writing Ulysses, what's he got cooking up over there? And then, you know, it yeah. makes it harder and harder if your problem is that you're putting too much pressure on yourself. I, I will say though about Eugenides, um, he took nine years between Virgin Suicides and Middlesex, and I loved both books. Ah. And I, I, I think you know it was well worth the nine year, the right amount of time period. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one last thing about Ellison, he he in a letter to Saul Bellow, he said he had writer's block as big as the Ritz. Which I thought was a <laughs> good phrase. Okay, so I'll take my number one. That was my number one. I said he was the that was the quintessential story with an asterisk, and the asterisk was just the. I ultimately concluded there could be no one quintessential story because the varieties of uh, writer's block are too too great. You know, there's for some it's staring at a blank page, and for others it's writing a thousand pages that you throw away because you hate them all. You know, there's just too many different types of writer's block. So uh, Mm -hmm. my second one, I'm calling Waiting for the Muse. And for this one, I think it started with the Romantic Poets. This actually might be, the Romantics might be where writer's block started, which is, uh, makes sense if you think about it, because they were writers who you kind of declared yourself a writer or a poet 
without having written anything. And you were, you know, that you, that was going to be your vocation. And then you you might wait for the muse or wait for the inspiration and and then complain that it hadn't arrived or that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't there for you that day. And and there's something bizarre about it. There aren't other professions really that have this same kind of view of themselves that they would have something like a writer's block. You know, an auto mechanic doesn't come into work and just sit down in a chair and say, I've got mechanics block. I'm, I'm stuck. I can't do it. You know, he would just say, well, I guess I'm no longer a mechanic. I'm done. I have to go find something else to do. Or imagine if a dancer, you know, if you said, I'm a dancer. I just, I know I'm a dancer. My, I was born to be a dancer. I've never danced because I have dancer's block. It just, it's, it's a little bit ridiculous. Either you write or you don't. And if you don't write, you're not a writer. But uh, the Romantic Poets, I think, handed to us this idea that, no, you can be a writer. You can still be a writer. You, you still have the right to call yourself a writer, uh, especially after you've written, you know, one thing. And Or maybe it's not even so much about if you've uh, already proven yourself to be a writer, but just the there's something about the act of writing that permits us to say that one can be blocked when one's trying to do it. You know, when when trying to get to the heart of, you know, the origins of writer's block and what it really means, it reminds me of what Judy Bloom has said about writer's block, which is, I don't believe in writer's block. For me, there's no such thing as writer's block. Don't even say writer's block. <laughs> which, she begins, she begins with like, you know, this like really confident statement, and then it turns into like some kind of voodoo. Yeah. Like, you know, don't, right, you know, right, right. <laughs> I, don't try to like, don't yeah. try to like to, to burst my, this, you know, this spell that I've cast upon yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah. Cause superstitiously, it might <laughs> infect me tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, Shelly says, sticking with the romantic poets, Shelly said, a man cannot say, I will compose poetry. Poetry arrives from some invisible influence, like an inconstant wind. <laughs> which a lot of people um you know a lot of people have sort of said no you 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 got to sit down and do it you can't just wait for the inspiration you have to get those fingers moving and you know put words on on paper uh Coleridge also although he was had this uh you know issues where he was he would turn procrastination and writer's block into trips to the opium and trips to get opium to calm his nerves and numb his pain. He said that he would have an indefinite, indescribable terror when he thought about the big projects he wanted to write. <laughs> uh, okay. So I'm taking all the romantic poets, I guess, for my, my number one pick. All right. My, uh, my next pick is Joseph Mitchell. Which, um, yeah that's a, this is a sad case yeah i mean i i love his essays stories up in the old hotel mm -hmm. about the bowery and yeah so he was in you know he was a new yorker writer he very very successful by the time he was in his by the time by the 1950s and then basically went about 30 years he went into work every day at the new yorker but he went about 30 years without publishing anything to the point mm -hmm. where um, his his fellow editors would uh, would kind of check the wastebasket to see if there was any like writing crumpled up in his uh, in, <laughs> in his office and um, but 
I wanted to talk also about Joe Gould, who didn't suffer from writer's block, but right. he he had been, you know, Joseph Mitchell had done a long book about Joe Gould called Joe Gould's Secret, who claimed that he was composing this long masterpiece, an oral history of our time, and he had notebooks of his masterpiece. And then uh, he would never show them to anybody. But finally, when he did show Mitchell, and I love this, it turned out that it was nothing more than records of his baths, his meals, and other <laughs> mundane personal details. This part I love. Completely rewritten, revised, and written again. So it was like... <laughs> So there's something about the 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 marriage of Joe Gould's fakery and yeah. Joseph Mitchell's inability to write that somehow seems like, you know, yeah, it's just doubly sad. Yeah. To, to Joe Mitchell. Right. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm going to ride right along with that one because I have an example that's very similar, which is Truman Capote, where... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Martin Amos said that Capote spent a decade pretending to write a novel. And <laughs> after Capote wrote In Cold Blood, he said, oh, the next one will be easy. It's all in my head. And for years, he described it that it was going to be this total takedown of New York high society. And it was the great American novel. And it was going to be his masterpiece. And finally, he published a few magazine pieces about some parties and confess that that was kind of all he had that he this novel that everyone kind of feared uh was basically it just kind of sputtered out and harper lee his childhood friend the author of to kill a mockingbird she never wrote another novel even the supposed sequel was written before she wrote to kill a mockingbird and hers was an interesting case because it's it's kind of a variation on success and um, the inability to write afterwards where it's almost like a happy story in a way, which is the life almost gets too good. It takes away your incentive. And yeah. she used to say that she, you know, she would have friends over. Too many people wanted to meet her and wanted to see her and wanted to visit. And so she started writing at six in the morning and then her friends figured out that she was awake at six in the morning. So they would start turning up and <laughs> having coffee and you know stuff like that. So I, oh I'm gosh. not sure she was too miserable about her writer's block in a way that someone like Ralph Ellison was. Uh, maybe she wrote the book that she set out to write. George R.R. R. Martin, the Game of Thrones author, mm -hmm. said something similar where he said, in recent years, all of the work I've been doing creates problems because it creates distraction. Because the books and the show are so popular, I have interviews to do constantly. I have travel plans constantly. It's like suddenly I get invited to travel to South Africa or Dubai, and who's passing up a free trip to Dubai? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of writer's block, but it's also kind of like shifting priorities for the writer, maybe, that it's you start enjoying some of the celebrity or some of the trappings that came along with the success of your writing. And uh, you just kind of never get around to the more painful work of drafting something. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know if you've read Homeland Elegies by Ayed Akhtar, but there, he, he won the Pulitzer for a play he wrote, Disgraced. Hmm. And in Homeland Elegies, which is like a, a, a mashup of memoir and essay and fiction, there's a the the main character who's named Ayad Akhtar wins the Pulitzer and then basically is descended upon by 
the literary world and mm. the Muslim aristocracy of and of hedge fund hedge funders and you know professors and uh, think tanks and he's wined and dined and flown everywhere all over the world and without him you know making it so blunt clearly he has no time to write mm. and he's he, he he considers himself very you know with a bullsh- a, a strong bullshit detector and you know very proud and not easily wowed by money and wealth and women and but he falls under the that spell mm. okay so what is your next pick all right i went with two writers who i think underwent the same thing which is michael shaben mm. and chang ray lee mm. okay so, yeah i was i was reading that they both were working on like thousand page novels mm-hmm. after their first novels and they eventually it, it's kind of memorialized a bit in the movie Wonder Boys with mm, the, mm-hmm. the character Grady Tripp is working on a book and he puts a, a new sheet of paper in the typewriter and in the upper right hand corner he types the page number and he, he, he types two, two, three and then he looks down at the prior pages and then he, he adds another three. So to show <laughs> that he's just just plowing ahead on this book but both of them at some point kind of just came to their senses and just set aside these thousand page novels and Mm. they each wrote um shorter novels that were you know big successes so i think there's something about you know all these little tricks that writers try to do um but they kind of forget the biggest trick which is just start a new book yeah right set it aside yeah you know I thought that there would be some interesting uh there would be some interesting things to talk about about ways to combat writer's block but ultimately I found the stories not to be so interesting. <laughs> it it just seemed like a lot of advice that is kind of, you know, stuff everyone's heard a million times, you know, take a break from your writing, get up from the desk and walk around you know, go to bed at night knowing exactly what you're going to write the next day. And there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of famous writers are are giving advice. I guess they get asked this question a million times probably. But uh, it always, um, I don't know, in the end, it, it seems like there's about six things that you hear over and over and over. I mean, it, it, it does seem like when a writer has a good trick, it really works for them. Yeah. Um, you know, like Jack London writing, I, I forget, like, you know, 150 words a day, mm. you know, or Graham Greene, Graham I forget Green, how many yeah. words a day. 500. 500 words a day. You know, like people who have these like little tricks, like, <laughs> um, it really, really works for them. I mean, I, I was reading Mirakami was saying that they asked him in an interview about, um, you know, Japan. It was, it was kind of like a softball question about Japan and, um, Miyazaki's films and Mirakami kind of like lost his cool a little bit and mm. he says he says I have never seen any of Miyazaki's films I like to keep a sharp division between things that interest me and things that don't in order to use the limited time allotted to me in life most economically an anime just happens to belong to the category of things that don't interest me <laughs> And I, I, I mean, I just could feel like yeah. he was like, hey, writing, writing takes a lot of energy. 
like just because I'm Japanese doesn't mean I have to watch some <laughs> Miyazaki films. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so I guess it's my turn. I am going to take my, this is my category number four, which mm-hmm. is, I think it's my pick number three, which is, I just put it down as brain problems. I don't mean to to, <laughs> to sound uh, too flip or anything, but I, I think of it as sort of the psychology of it and maybe even the brain chemistry of it. There are manic depressives who go on the cycles and maybe if they're on medication or getting treatment and the creativity is dulled or, or taken away or they think that it is. And also a kind of the Freudian psychological block that there's some kind of trauma or disturbance that needs to be removed. And the writer's block is just sort of a stand-in for something else that is impeding your ability to move forward in, you know, your mind to, to move forward. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this to me is People, um, you know, they'll often say like, well, I just don't have the right pencils. I need to have the exact right pencils. But, you know, the pencils don't matter. It's something else that is the pencils are just a stand in for. Virginia Woolf was kind of an example of this. But Sylvia Plath is uh, I'll choose her because she had this great description. And I'll read a little bit from her. uh, This is from her unabridged journals. And she wrote, uh, I am evidently going through a stage in beginning writing similar to my two months of hysteria in beginning teaching last fall. A sickness, frenzy of resentment at everything but myself at the bottom. I lie wakeful at night, wake exhausted with that sense of razor-shaved nerves. I must be my own doctor. I must cure this very destructive paralysis and ruinous brooding and daydreaming. If I want to write, this is hardly the way to behave in horror of it, frozen by it. The ghost of the unborn novel is a Medusa head. (laughs) (laughs) And then she kind of goes on for a while, and then she actually says, My danger, partly, I think, is becoming too dependent on Ted. I enjoy it when Ted is off for a bit. I can build up my own inner life, my own thoughts, without his continuous, What are you thinking? What are you going to do now? Which makes me promptly and recalcitrantly stop thinking and doing. Um, you know, she says, we are amazingly compatible, but I must be myself, make myself and not let myself be made by him. And it just, it it is kind of an interesting thing to think about. I mean, their relationship is so famous and so famously contentious and, and disputed, but, you know, we maybe don't give enough credit to the role of the spouse or the other, the partner or the the best friend or the roommate in writer's block. You know, we sort of assume that the writer is sitting alone at his or her table and, you know, with the laptop or the computer, but we don't always think about uh, the kids who could have a role in this or the, you know, the money problems or the, the spouse's insistence on uh, doing something nearby or, or you know, trying to get the writer to do something else or uh, or maybe just the, the pressure that one feels for trying to produce in order to hold one's own in the relationship or provide for a family or all those kinds of concerns. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not happening in a, writing is not never happening in a vacuum. And yeah. if, if, 
your country or your city or your family isn't kind of stable or supportive it's hard to mm. it's hard to produce something i mean i think i mean i i, I don't I find that a lot of writers today are um, incredibly uh, wealthy, economically stable. And I, I think that's another big factor is back perhaps in the past there was more right there were more writers who were kind of holding down day jobs and trying to make do teaching, whereas now it seems like so many writers just don't have any jobs whatsoever. Yeah. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. And we'll come back with the rest of our picks of great instances of writer's block. Okay, we're back. Mike, this is, I think, your pick number four. Who do you, who do you have for us? Oh, no, this is five. I oh, think. this is five? Did I miscount? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, are we doing five each? We're not, or are we doing ten each? Five each. Okay. <laughs> so we're almost done. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm going to pick um, the, the poet Mallarmé, Mallarmé, because I thought it was like really interesting that I, I think of him as one of the, you know, great French symbolist poets. And I, I was astonished to learn that he's he only written sixty poems, mm. and in thirty six years, and Roland Barthes <laughs> called him the Hamlet of writing, <laughs> which I just any chance I get to quote Barthes, I uh, yeah. I'll take. <laughs> um, but but you know this this goes back to my you know my theory that maybe it's better, you know, so the people who say that writer's block mm. doesn't exist. I think maybe the flip side of that is to say that, you know, what you were saying, which is maybe this is what you have in you. Yeah. You know, and that if you want to write 60 poems, you know, all the power to you. I was reading that, you know, the idea of writer's block is really a, a modern idea and that there isn't a word for writer's block in French and German. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, it does seem like one of these things that, you know, we need to explain why a, a writer hasn't published in a while. Yeah. And because so many writers just say that, you know, it's, it's just a matter of technique. Mm. And it's not really this, you know, elephant in the room. Yeah, right. Okay, well, let me take my, I guess it's my last pick then, uh, because... This kind of fits right into that theme, which is my last thing was nothing left to say. And Updike <laughs> thought that that was true of Melville after Moby Dick, that he had written these books about the sea and that was his writer's capital and he had used it up. For a lot of people, maybe it's uh, something that happened in their childhood or or maybe it's the story of their family or or, you know, an event. Maybe they were in the war or something like that and maybe one book about it says what they have to say and then they don't have anything left to say and what we call writer's block is if they're facing the blank page and they're they're hitting some psychological obstruction or something maybe they just don't have a good story or or that spark that would sustain a whole novel or anything like that that isn't just burning inside them to come out dashiell hammett had a really interesting twist on this where he wrote his first four novels in three years, 
when he was wow. in his thirties, and they made him they made him famous. Then he went to Hollywood, where he made piles of money and spent mm. much of it in bars. And then in 1934, when he was 39, his fifth novel, The Thin Man, came out, and that was it. Although he lived for three more decades, uh, wow. he he didn't write anymore. And he said. Later in life, he said he stopped publishing because he felt like he was repeating himself. He said, it is the beginning of the end when you discover that you have a style. And he tried to alter his style. He tried to write something besides detective novels. And he wrote, he just kept, he kept writing the whole time, but he never accomplished anything that satisfied him. And it was almost as if he just had that, that marriage of the detective style, you know, the detective novel with it, with that style. And then once he felt like he had exhausted that there was nothing left he wanted to do it makes me admire him yeah i mean as much as i love going to a bookstore and seeing a new book by someone i you know whose previous books i liked because instantly i just think like oh it's got to be just as good as my favorite book of of his or her of or, or hers and it, it 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 often turns out not to be the case mm. writers are you know, there's incredible pressure on them to publish. You know, I, if people haven't seen the movie Wonder Boys, I highly recommend it. I think they're, you know, it really shows this. I, it must be even worse than the way it's depicted in the film, but it shows the pressures of publishing and all the gossip that goes around a writer who hasn't published in a, in a while. Mm. <laughs> Okay, well, let's leave things there. Mike, as always, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Hmm, that is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed this look at Ralph Allison, both his triumphs and his tribulations. We're lucky we have Invisible Man, and he's lucky he published it. His life would have been sheer misery without it. I think all that talent and intellect and no one would recognize it. Sometimes you just gotta hit send on that email, people. Time to put yourself out there or to hit record on that microphone if you're a podcaster. Record and upload. It's not a great life, frankly, but it'll do until one something better comes along. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, too, for joining us for that look at Writer's Block. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.